Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Carla. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule. I just heard a little bit about it offline. <laughs> so we're, we're glad you're re-energized for, for this episode at least. But before we dive in, anything interesting going on in your world that you'd like to share? Well, I know we're going to talk about uh, boards and cybersecurity, which has been very interesting for me, especially over the last few weeks. But um I also have my LinkedIn learning course on cyber threat intelligence come out a couple of weeks ago. And so far, the feedback's been really good. So I'm very proud of the work that went into that. So something something exciting going on as well. You're full of surprises because you've gone through so many roles. Where does that fit into your wheelhouse of skill sets? Well, they invited me to record a course and we landed on cyber threat intelligence. The company I work for, Orpheus Cyber, where I'm COO, we're a threat intelligence company at the core. So I got, um, yeah, there's a big team of threat intelligence analysts that work there and it sort of fits quite nicely with what we do as a business. So I was a little nervous, not going to lie, to start with because I'm not a cyber threat analyst, but um, yeah, I think it came out pretty well in the end. Nice. Awesome. Also, just quick uh, kudos and congratulations on your advisory board's guidebook. That's what we're going to be unpacking today. And um, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, I sat on a few advisory boards now and I've seen some great things and some great work that we've been able to do and also some growing pains and how they come together. I've seen an explosion in the amount of advisory boards that exist within cybersecurity in the last few years and a lot of questions from people who want to do it as well. Like CISOs in particular, I think, see that as one of their next career moves. So it felt like the market's changed and there's, you know, a a real interest in advisory boards and board uh, level advice for cybersecurity in general. So timing just felt right and I felt like I had the experience to put down my thoughts in a way that might be useful for other people. I also looked for what else is out there and I could only find you know one or two things nothing cybersecurity specific so it felt like there was a bit of a gap in uh, some of this advice as well. And that's a great segue you talked about experience would you mind just sharing briefly a little bit about your background and what led to the this book? Yeah sure well I have an interesting route into cybersecurity. So I set up a recruitment business uh, more years ago than I would care to care to say. Um, but that did pretty well in the UK and then later in the US. And I sold that business a few years ago to a, a bigger recruitment company. And after my time there came to an end, I joined uh, Orpheus as their COO. Um, even though that wasn't recruitment, you know, running one business is relatively similar to running another. So it felt like a a good move and something that allowed me to get more involved in the industry itself. And I think because of the combination of that experience, then I've had a a few people invite me to join their advisory boards and give them uh, advice on how I've managed to sell uh, that business and and another one as well. So 
um, that's how I ended up where I am today and in that position. Great. Well, I'm excited to dive into each chapter of your book. You open with the first chapter on types of boards. Would you run us through the highlights of that chapter? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a chapter that I felt was really needed as well. People use some of these words interchangeably. So I think you can start with maybe a customer advisory board, which is where you're getting in customers or potential customers, if if you're too small to have customers yet to talk really about your product and where your product development can go, feedback on how you're providing your services. That's the primary goal there. The next type of board is maybe an advisory board where you're looking for people who can advise you on still maybe product and market fit, but also more aspects of your business. So this might be things like, well, how do I position myself for growth? What type of role should I be hiring or thinking of as my next hire? What do I need to be looking for from my financials if I want to get funding? Those sort of questions. And then you've got your more traditional board. So this might be where if you've taken investment, your VCs are going to sit, um, where you, you've got more of a governance role. So this is around actually reviewing financials, which you might not do for an advisory board. And it's about really having a, often having a real interest in that business in terms of your equity or your investment and helping that business to grow across all areas of a business. Um, the one area I don't cover in the book is then, you know, public boards. So um, I'm actually writing the next the next thing about public boards for cybersecurity, because there's a lot of people that want to go give that cybersecurity advice to bigger companies. But the purpose of what we're talking about was really to cover off, if you're a cyber vendor or cyber provider, what type of board would you have or be thinking of having? And then you go into why do you need a board? Yeah, because this feels this feels difficult, right? Like, well, I'm brand new or I'm very small or I haven't got customers yet. There's a whole load of reasons why you could come up with not creating it. But one of the companies in particular that I've worked with, they brought me on board almost day one. And I feel and I, I think they would agree that I've been able to then really help them grow and put in things in place very early that have enabled them to grow. So. I'm a big fan of putting in a board as soon as you possibly can because I think they can really enable your growth if you get the right people and the right mix of skills in there. And what should I look for in a board member? Yeah, I think the main takeaway from this chapter is around value alignment. You know, working with people that align with exactly what you're looking for and whom you enjoy working with. You know, do they align to your values and how you want the company to be perceived? I, I mean that from an investor standpoint as well. You know, I think that's very important. So there's a lot in there, like what you should look for in terms of how you break down what skill sets you need and do you need industry expertise versus functional expertise. But yeah, my big takeaway is look for people that are going to make that journey fun. How would you recommend compensating board members? In terms of how you compensate, like I even say that not every role is compensated. Customer advisory boards in particular you're probably on that type of board because you're working for a certain organization, not necessarily because of who you are personally. So those roles may not be compensated right up to, you know, actually being paid and having equity in the company. I'm a big fan of um, equity. You know, you, you should both be working towards the same goal of helping that company grow. And I think it really helps them when you're going to see some upside on that. Um, and the company know that you're motivated 
that way to really help them grow. So for me, equity is a, a big a big plus for this type of board. I'm assuming you've seen equity play out positively. I would imagine equity could have someone less enthusiastic because whether or not they are doing any work and the company succeeds, they will benefit as well versus paying them a nominal fee. They're sort of more accountable. That's a great point. So most equity agreements should have in there something about what you're expected to deliver. So maybe that's introductions, maybe it's how many hours per month you're expected to do so that you you don't just get equity and then not deliver anything. Um, And, you know, there is a risk, right? There is a joint risk if you are taking equity for your time. So you really need to believe that that company is a company that you could exit from at some point in the future at an amount that would be compensating you appropriately for your time. Um, and so I have had a couple of offers where I don't believe that to be the case. So uh, either then I need to be paid for my time or it's probably not the right because I just, yeah, don't have that same belief in the company. In terms of managing your board members, what was this chapter all about? I think like starting a board is probably daunting enough, but then well, what do you do with all these people? Like how do you, how do you conduct these meetings in a way that is efficient um, and effective? And I think there's a blend between, you know, one-to-one with your advisors and sure, you know, proper board meetings where everybody is in the room together. And for this, I'm really focused on advisory board roles rather than the kind of traditional board that you would have. They're, they're obviously going to be very different. You've got a different governance focus. Um, and I think the big thing that you need to think about is firstly, have I set my expectation very clearly from the beginning with what I'm looking for from this person and for them to deliver? And I think another good option is to consider whether or not it should be you as the founder or CEO that's actually chairing those meetings. Can you have an outside person or a board member be the chair of those meetings so that you can participate, you can listen in a, in a slightly more efficient way um, and maybe get different answers as well because somebody else is posing a question. Um, so an example might be if you want to talk about price of your product or price increases or something like that. I think if that's coming from a chair or a, a third party and they're positioning that question um, and positioning follow-up questions in a way that you aren't, it feels less salesy. Um, you know, those people don't feel like they're being put on the spot as, as much as they might do if it's coming from you as a CEO. So I think that's just one example of where that can be more a more effective way to manage your board. Yeah, and that led me to think about the actual formation of the board. How many board members do you need and what specialist roles would you advise? You could have many different types of expertise, but what do you think are the most invaluable or in marketing, they call these folks T-shaped marketers who have multiple disciplines across marketing. So I don't know if it's the same with board members. Yeah, I actually have um, a worksheet that goes alongside it for ideal board member profile. So much like you would have your ideal customer profile, but your ideal board member profile. So um, I have a website where you can download that if that's something someone's interested in. And then I think it depends what you need. So sometimes your advisory board could be a way of you getting leadership or expertise that maybe you're not ready to hire yet. You know, maybe you do put in an accountant 
because you're not ready to hire a CFO or a lawyer or uh, maybe even a chief marketing officer. Someone with those skill sets could be a good addition. Um, I, I think, and not everybody agrees with me, but I think the goal of your board is to further your business. They should be people that can get you into rooms that you can't get in, or will at least say your name in a room that you can't be a part of, you know? And so if that's a CISO, a lot of the time, the value that you're bringing as a CISO to that advisory board is your peer group. Um, you know, being quite honest, most startups don't need cybersecurity advice. They're probably being run by cybersecurity experts. Most CISOs don't have the go-to-market sales experience that actually is really crucial for those businesses. So I think you just need to recognize that a lot of your value is in who you can introduce to the company and that the value you're getting in return is you're getting exposure to those business skills, which will hopefully enhance your career development overall. So how many board members and what would be like your top three to five board member hires? So I've seen anywhere from three to I think about 15 and somewhere in between that, probably on the lower end, feels like a better number. Um, my first pick would be somebody that has built and exited successfully a business similar to what you are trying to do. Um that would be my my go-to because they've seen that and they've seen the problems. Or even someone that built it and failed, like, you know, and how you can learn from those failures, I think would be good. Um, and then I'd be looking at their industry profile, their networks, um, for the reasons I just mentioned. And then I'd be looking at anybody with something that I particularly lack. So, you know, it might be uh, like if it was my company and, you know, the Orpheus does have this expertise, but I don't personally have expertise, for instance, in the regulatory environment. So I might look for someone like that um, to complement me and my skill set as an example. What did you mean by getting the most out of your board? How does that tie into previous chapters? So I've certainly seen, you know, as particularly with larger, larger boards, um, you know, actually not everybody then performs at the same rate or meets your meets expectations at the same rate but like any team right not everybody is going to be uh not everyone is going to be a high performer so then i think it's you've got to look at partly how i'm managing and how i'm communicating and then how are you setting your expectations and measuring those expectations you know you should never be in a place where at the end of say a two-year term someone just really hasn't met them and has no idea that they're not meeting them much like you would manage anybody else. So I think like that clear expectation setting and managing throughout and staying and reverting back to that, it's very easy for these conversations to go off track. Like I've certainly seen that a lot where actually the group gets very caught up in, you know, a trend or something that they're excited about, but we're not actually bringing it back to the purpose of the meeting because the conversation is is going so well. So I think like, that is another really important area. And back to my previous point where having, you know, an independent person or a third party leading that meeting could be quite helpful. So perhaps the problem lies in the contract where you set expectations up front 
like you would for any hire. Have you seen any specific wording or structure that lends to setting a good foundation for performance from the get-go? Yeah, I have. Like it's pretty um, usual, I think, in these agreements to do that, right? To set out what your expectation is very early on, have that be part of your contract. Um, and then what I've seen in some is, you know, this is sort of minimum good and great performance. And this is how that will, uh, this is what we measure that by. And this is how, what that means in terms for you of remuneration um, and at different stages of the business too. So if you can do that and if you can have the foresight to put that in early stage, then I think that's going to really, really help you. And like we said, none of this is particularly different to how you manage anybody. Like, you know, good management means we've set expectations, we revisit them, and you're given honest and helpful feedback as to whether or not you're performing against those expectations. This should be exactly the same. Yeah, I was about to summarize. Follow best practices like you would hiring anybody for a particular role and you should be fine. And then um, what? What sort of conflicts of interests may occur and how do you avoid those? So many examples. <laughs> I've actually done a whole podcast on just conflicts of interest. Well, we but, have, um, we have, we're, we're doing good on time. So you don't need to rush. Right. <laughs> fine. So, I mean, one of my favorite stories, and this is in there too, goes back to my recruitment company when uh, one of my team approached a very well-known CISO to work with and he said, do you know what? I only work with recruitment companies where I sit on their board. Would you like me to join your board? Um, my answer was a very quick no. Like That's, you know, just a modern way of asking for backhanders, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, my view of that person is forever tainted. And not only of him, but of the companies that he does sit on as a board member, because, you know, I very suspicious about why he has those roles and you know how he is then compensated for them it really taints the companies in in my view so I think that's a big one but that leads itself to a really difficult question because if I sit on the board of a company I've probably done that because I believe in the company and I believe in the product and if an opportunity arises for me to work with them why would I not be choosing that company and that product if I'm going through an appropriate process. Um, actually, if I don't choose them because I'm sitting on their board, am I then putting my own company at a disadvantage because I'm not picking somebody who I believe to be one of the, the best out there in the market? So I, I don't know that there's a perfect answer. My answer to that is any time that has arisen for me and it has arisen, is that everybody who is involved in that is uh, fully aware of what my role is, like where the, you know, what money is changing hands or, or not. And um, this, you know, I don't think anybody could look at the decisions that have been made and call into question my role in that. So I think that open openness and communication is maybe the way to, uh, to counteract that one. But it, it does open itself to a really difficult question. When you said it taints those companies, I mean, why would it taint the companies? Wouldn't it taint the individual? Well, I think if I had said yes to that, if I had wanted to win the work, so I said yes to having this person join um, join the company board at that time, 
I'm really, you know, what else am I prepared to do? Am I prepared to write them a check for $10,000 to get them to give me the work? You know, I think everybody would agree that that would be wrong, but where is the difference really? Um, and so that makes me question, did they make a different decision to what I made when faced with that opportunity or, or choice? Um, and what else are they willing to do to, to win that work if that's where they're prepared to go? So, um, yeah, that's what I mean. Gotcha. So moving on to, I think this is your favorite or a topic you're super passionate about is diversity. Can you talk a little bit about how diversity plays a role in boards and how you can support that and be proactive around making that happen? Yeah, I mean, I am very passionate about this. And I think a board is an area where you can really control the makeup of that team. Obviously, you control that in the hires you bring into the business. But when you're in startup mode or even scale-up mode, you need people who have the skills and you need them now. And actually, if your diversity tips off, maybe you don't care that much. There's a big debate about, um, you know, that congruence between your founding members as well. Often that means you work with people that you've worked with before and who look and sound like you and think like you. And I understand why you do that as a startup founder. I have actually found in the, the research that I've done that smaller companies tend to have a more diverse team, which, um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for. One of them, obviously, is that when you're five people, you can have two women out of five and suddenly you've got 40% females in your team, which is a little bit harder to do when you've got a thousand people. But, um, you know, I, I, I do understand why startups find it harder than bigger companies to put those resources into thinking of a diverse team. But your board can be so, um, so intentional with how you do that. And there are plenty of high-performing achieve you know people with high achievements in cybersecurity that come from all backgrounds you know all races women men you know people that think very differently so you can be really intentional i think here and i do sometimes look at companies and if i look at them and their board is one type of person i'm incredibly put off by that company uh you know i have looked at that in the past when considering do i want to work for, for this company uh i don't think i'm alone in doing that and um, I think it's an area where there's so many good people out there. If you're, if you're telling me you can't find somebody that doesn't look like you to sit on your board, I'm telling you, you just haven't looked hard enough. Yeah. And that, that might lead us to what are some channels or playbooks that you've used to find people for the board and diverse board? What has worked for you? I mean, you're a woman, so maybe it's easier for you to find other women, but Let's put ourselves in the shoes of a male CEO. How would you go and find good talent? Because there's also the argument, let's just hire the best person for the job. Uh, maybe that takes precedence. That whole best thing for the job. I have never seen an underqualified woman get a job over a more qualified man, not once. And I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of people get jobs. So like, I just have never, ever bought that argument. And then even if I'm going to accept that that is true and that happens, I think about that like building a sports team. So my whole family is a soccer team. So we'll we'll talk about it like soccer. Which team? But you Which might team? need multiple <laughs> teams. And I'm an Arsenal fan. <laughs> Liverpool. Um, <laughs> so you, you might need a striker, right? And so obviously you're not going to put someone in your team that isn't a striker. You're going to have to find a striker. 
But that person also has to fit into your team. And that might not mean hiring the best striker in the world. Manchester United and Ronaldo is a great example here, right? You put an amazing striker in your team who then doesn't perform, who doesn't want to be part of your team and who actually, I mean, maybe fans hate is going a little bit too far with this analogy, but you know, he wasn't a good fit for that team. So it didn't have to be about having the best person. It had to be about having the best person for that team. And if your team in a cybersecurity environment is 11 men putting a woman into that team or putting any kind of diverse thinking into your team, diverse background, um, actually makes them the right person for the team and that makes them the best person for the job. So that's very much how I, I think about that. Um, and, you know, I know there's a whole argument around diverse thinking versus diverse characteristics. I feel like we're on the way to diverse thinking, but as a society, we're probably not there yet. You know, that's that's kind of my view on, on that. I think it's about experiences um, rather than just being able to say, hey, we all look the same, but I promise you we think different. He's a Liverpool fan and I'm Arsenal. Look how different we are. Like, I don't think we're quite there yet. So that's how I think about the kind of best person for the job. There are so many people out there. Part of it, obviously, is about being intentional in how you build your network. You might be right. I might find it easier to connect with women because I, I am female. But, um, you know, I think you can be intentional about building your network in that way. Uh, see, well, probably about three years ago now, I said I wouldn't speak at an event if there wasn't some racial diversity in the people that were speaking. And quite often we were hearing, we just can't find those people. So... I probably spent less than an hour and created a list of people who are not white that are very accomplished in cybersecurity and who speak publicly. Like I still have this list on my website. Probably needs updating, but it's there. Like it's um it wasn't hard to go find those people. I just had to make a little bit of effort. So I think it's pretty easy personally. But there are also organizations and sites that will help. So uh Him for Her is an example of a website that um, tries to promote gender diversity on boards and to connect women with poor positions. You know, the 30% club has done very well for, for boards and diverse, gender diversity in boards. And they have a lot of resources on how you can do that and how you can find more people. But I promise you, they are there. When you were speaking about like characteristics versus similar thinking or. Yeah, there's something about, you know, diversity of thought versus diversity so, of characteristics. Uh, yeah, so wouldn't you say diversity of characteristics will automatically sort of generate diversity of thought? Is that where you were going with it? I mean, yes. I, I think right now where we're at in our diversity journey as a society and an industry, I believe yes, that diverse characteristics leads to diverse thinking. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. I think there is, uh, you know, absolutely a risk that if you've all come from the same school, university, but you might be different genders, different races, but you've all actually learned to think the same, you know, there's, there's something in that too. We talk about that uh, a lot in the threat intelligence world, you know, typically they're, they might all come from different countries and you know, be different genders, but actually probably all gone to a similar university. They're all interested in very similar things. Like, are we really getting diverse thought? Um, so I think it is a really 
big conversation. But yeah, for me right now, saying, well, we all think differently is a, is a cop out on creating a diverse, more equitable board or company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then kind of wrapping up here on the, the last chapter, I think, in your book from the other side. So if you want to go and find yourself an advisory board position, what are like the steps you should take? Yeah. So, you know, there are, there are websites and there are some of these jobs do get advertised, but a lot of them don't. And a lot of them come down to how trusted you are. So I think a, a big thing for you to do is to build or maintain the network that you have. Uh, you know, maybe try and build that network more with CEOs or founders if, um, if you're not strong in that area. And then to be upfront and tell people, this is something I want to do and something I'm looking at. Like actually since putting this, uh, this ebook out, I've had people reach out to me saying, Hey, I'm taking your advice and I'm letting you know that I, I'm looking at these roles. So, you know, just little things like that and then keeping in touch and following up with those people. That's, that's a big part of the puzzle that often gets overlooked. So for me, probably for every single type of role, not just board roles, but maybe more, even more so with board roles, I think you need to, build and maintain your your network and be open about the fact that it's something you want to do. So would you say there are any like prerequisites that stand you in good stead? Like you must have successfully done X, Y, Z, start with very early stage companies following the crossing the chasm principle. I mean, that's probably the direction that I've taken, but I don't know that you necessarily have to do that. I think the main thing, and it's, you know, the flip side of a, a founder saying, I need to be really clear on what I expect and what I want is you need to be really clear on what you do and don't offer. So, you know, one of those things, if you're a, a CISO, you have great industry insight, you know, CISO challenges, you know what you want from a product, but you maybe don't know how to build a business. And I think being really clear that actually, this is something I don't know and something I want to know and get more involved in. You, you need to understand that and own that because it's okay because we know what value you can bring. Um, but I often don't see that level of humility. What I see a lot is, you know, CISOs who say, I know how I like to be sold to. So therefore, this is how you should sell. Never having sold anything at all in their lives. So I think. They're in a the bit of a gap sometimes there in, um, you know, I'm picking on CISOs a little bit, which <laughs> probably doesn't do me any favors. But, you know, that's where I see the biggest gap is kind of that lack of understanding of what you need to do to build a business um, and then being open about the fact that you don't have those skills, but showing what you do have and what you will bring and what you want to learn. From your experience, maybe... We could apply it to the tech ecosystem. What board positions would you say are high in demand right now? What does that profile look like? So in my opinion, that profile is somebody that has some level of public persona. So, you know, it probably comes with a relatively senior job title or a very specific set of skills, if, if not kind of a very senior level. Um, and then you probably have some kind of public presence. You're probably doing public speaking or... Something where actually if I'm a founder and I add you to my board, other people sit up and take notice because you've given me your badge of approval. Um, and that's where, you know, CISOs, that's a value you bring, right? Like, you know, understanding that's part of my value um, and this is why. 
that's really important for, for those people to acknowledge as well. But yeah, I would say that's what I see as being most in demand when people talk to me about, um, you know, I'm thinking of starting a, an advisory board who should I put on it. They go to is big names in the industry because they know that that's going to get them views and attention. And that's what you need when you're trying to cut through the noise and craziness that is the, like the security marketplace. And, and continuing on this thread, like, okay, you want to go after this sort of high profile individual early on. What challenges come up when trying to onboard someone like that? Is it they're too busy, the compensation's not enough, um, they don't believe in the product. I think time is the biggest thing. You know, typically those people are busy, have several different projects. Do they have the time to really dedicate to taking on any other products, uh, projects? So um, it may or may not be that they are excited about the product that you have, but it, I think the biggest, like the number one thing is do they have the time to um, to do it. And I, I guess you could also use customer acquisition strategies to bring on those early hires, founder friends who could also be on your board that are high profile or do you not recommend that? I think anything, anyone you can find that has been there and done it before is going to be really, really valuable. That, um, that comes up a little bit in conflicts of interest as well. You know, if you've got a group of founder friends, I think that can be really, really useful. You know, they're probably seeing similar challenges. How are they adapting to them and overcoming them? They can be really great members to put on your board. Um, and then you've just got to kind of cover off, you know, are actually, are any of us competing or are we going to be able to be open enough to to share some of these things? You know, if they're the right people, then of course you will. But that, uh, yeah, that ties back into conflicts of interest well around having the people on on your board that maybe don't uh, don't conflict it comes to it with um you know customer advisory boards too you know if you work with two manufacturing companies are they both happy that they're going to be in a, a, a room together so it comes up yeah a couple of times i think when you're when you're looking at as a founder how best do you synthesize all this advice coming in all different directions? So you have it on a daily basis from your team and now you have a board throwing advice at you. And I don't know if it's an adage yet, but like not all advice is equal and what worked a year ago, two years ago, five years ago doesn't work today. From your perspective, like how did you go about synthesizing all these ideas, distilling it down and make all that actionable? Well, I think an area where this is most challenging is on kind of product advice, because I've seen this in a few different conversations where you know, the advice is could take you in six different directions, maybe on things that one person would find useful. And I don't think that's an easy thing to do. We do it in every aspect of our lives, board or not, right? You know, do you take on advice from this person? Does this fit with what you want to do, what you believe? I think the real key, the real test is, are you hearing this multiple times from multiple people? Or is this piece of advice an outlier or something very specific to that person. So um, that is absolutely a challenge that you've got people you respect, people that you enjoy working with, but multiple opinions potentially coming to you. Um, and then, you know, it goes back to that kind of clear management, setting those meetings up for success, being clear as well on 
actually, I may or may not do the things that you tell me to do, you know, so that people don't end up disillusioned or unhappy that you haven't introduced their product idea or gone in the direction that, you know, you suggested they go in. So, um, but it is absolutely, uh, it can be a bit of a journey, you know, most companies have a couple of pivots in them. So um, I think you just need to work out, does this feel right to you? And are you hearing it from multiple people? And then perhaps the last question, which is a follow-up to what worked a year, two or five years ago, will not necessarily work in today's fast-paced evolving market. How does that apply when you're looking for a board member? This is such a great question because I think it's relevant for a couple of reasons. So, um, you know, what I'm writing the, the next part of this book on is cybersecurity advice to public company boards. And that is an area where it's really tricky because you do need to stay up to date on cybersecurity. The technology moves off very quickly. Um, and so, you know, the crux of that advice is to look for somebody who is staying up to date on new trends. Um, but then if it is, uh, you know, that someone who's started a company several years ago, you know, for instance, I still advise a recruitment company, even though I don't do that anymore. Um, and it's been six years since I actually sold that company anyway so it's a very long time since I set that business up the things that we did tactically are not really relevant to them but the things that have been really relevant to them are the bigger concepts um, to give an example we scaled uh, the business that I that I founded through what I've always called green flags. So when we hit this revenue or this trigger point, then we make our next hire. And this hire comes because we've hit XYZ metric. So that as a concept applies just as well today as it did 10 years ago. And that's something that we've, uh, that company and I really talked through a lot. You know, what is the trigger point to make that next hire or make that next expansion? So I think there is still value. It just multiple value. Perhaps one way of overcoming that challenge would be to look for a board advisor that sits on multiple boards. Again, as long as we check all the boxes with no conflict of interest, etc., etc. Yeah, I think that's a, a great example of how you could do that. You know, it's also, you know, how tactical do you need your board advisor to be? Like back to the recruitment company example, they don't need me to tell them where to find candidates. They know that, and that's different now from before. But you know, actually, how you grow and how you scale, manage people, succession plan. Uh, you know what? Um, in fact, I suppose a good area that you know that does change is what are buyers looking for if if an exit is um, something that's on your mind. So that's an area where I keep up to date through my network, the other companies that I'm a part of, the people I talk to, the material I read, because that does. That does change. So I think there's a lot of ways you can stay up to date. But um, yeah, if there are, the advice that you're constantly hearing is 10 years out of date, then you've probably not found the right fit. Earlier, you mentioned one of the key hires would be like people that can drive the business forward. There are many skills that don't necessarily have to be cutting edge, like operations, hiring. Those principles do evolve, but maybe less than go-to-market and growth tactics. Yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of areas where that skill set you know, isn't going to be wildly different. Awesome. Before we wrap up, is there anything we missed that you would like to add? 
No, I don't think so. Um, like it's a, it's an ebook. It's pretty short. It's free. This like it's not gated. So um, you know, and I'm always very interested in people's feet as well. So if anyone reads it and wants to share their thoughts with me, I would love to hear that. Perfect. We'll be sure to add it to the show notes. I was. Uh checking it out myself for anyone who wants to pick your brain further around this where is the best place for people to connect with you uh linkedin i'm pretty sure there's only one person with my name so i'm pretty easy to find and uh yeah i'm on there reasonably often and hopefully you won't get any football hooligans harassing you for being an arsenal fan (laughs) you spill perfumes on the internet now so (laughs) it's forever (laughs) yeah most difficult to declare your team, isn't it? But um, yeah, been an Arsenal fan for a long time as well, not just since they started doing well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Founder Pack podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.